Welcome to this week's episode of the Big Book Living Alive podcast, a weekly podcast showcasing the 1993 Big Book Seminar presented by Joe and Charlie in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. I am your host, Brad S., and I am an alcoholic. This week's episode number three deals with Bill meeting Dr. Bob and having some self-discovery and some shared discovery on whether or not this program, this idea that they had formulated really could work. Uh, could telling another person who is ill like they were, their problems really be a magic bullet or a answer to a problem that has been with us for almost as long as mankind has been able to make fire and not only cook meat with that fire, but also use it to ferment grains into alcohol. So this is a meet and greet type of episode. It has a lot of what happens when two people are meant to meet, are meant to talk, and are meant to create something that the world had never seen before. The brokerage where I'd gone to Akron on a business venture, which had collapsed, leaving him greatly in fear that he might start drinking again. He suddenly realized in order to save himself, he must carry his message to another alcoholic, and that alcoholic turned out to be the Akron physician. And we all know the story of Bill going to Akron on the business venture, going to take over one of the companies there through a proxy fight, this is in the midst of the Depression. Nobody has a dime, but that's all right. Bill's still going to get to be the president of the company. And while there, the deal fell through, and all of his friends had deserted him. He's standing in the lobby of the Mayflower Hotel, low, sad, and depressed, happened to look through the door off of the lobby into the bar. Probably the lights were low, and the music was playing, and the smoke was thick, and the laughter was great. And Bill said, I believe I'll go in there and have a soda and I will be with people of my kind and I'll feel better. But as he started through the door for the first time, his mind said, Bill, you can't do that. If you go in there, you're gonna get drunk. And in desperation, Bill remembered how back in New York City, even though he had never been able to help anybody before, every time he had tried, he himself had felt better. So Bill, in desperation, made a few phone calls, came in contact with this fellow named Dr. Bob. Bill didn't go see Dr. Bob in order to sober up Dr. Bob. Bill went to see Dr. Bob to keep Bill Wilson from getting drunk. I think it's well for that we all remember that. This physician had repeatedly tried spiritual means to resolve his alcoholic dilemma, but had failed. But when the broker gave him Dr. Silkworth's description of alcoholism and its hopelessness, the physician began to pursue the spiritual remedy for his malady with a willingness he had never before been able to muster. Bill was amazed when he got to Dr. Bob to find out that Dr. Bob had been a member of the Oxford groups much longer than Bill had. And Dr. Bob had been trying to apply the practical program of action in his life. But he had never been able to apply it to the depth necessary to recover because he didn't know what his problem was. He thought it was willpower. He thought it was moral character. He thought it was sin. Why wouldn't he? That's what everybody had told him up to that time. But when Bill sat down with him and described to him Dr. Silk's worst description of alcoholism, the fact about the physical allergy of the body, 
the fact about the obsession of the mind, for the first time, Dr. Bob understood what his problem was. Then he could see the hopeless condition that he was in, and he knew that willpower would no longer work. And he began to apply the program of action to a depth that he never had before, and lo and behold, he was able to recover from alcoholism also. This is probably one of the first great miracles of Alcoholics Anonymous. Here's this conning, speculating New York City stock speculator sits down with a well-trained physician and explains to the physician what was wrong with his body and his mind. Normally the doctor would have said, who in the hell are you to be telling me what's... But the message had such depth and interest that Dr. Bob bought into it almost immediately. One of the first great miracles of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I like this story where Bill and Bob get together because Bill goes down through this directory and he ends up getting a hold of this doctor, uh, uh, this uh, church uh, man, preacher, I'm going to call him, for lack of a better name, uh, Walter Tunks. And Walter Tunks was a new Henrietta Cyberling, and Henrietta Cyberling was going to the Oxford group meetings. And uh, Dr. Bob was a member of that group, and they'd been praying that Dr. Bob would find a solution to his problem. So when Bill Wilson called and asked if she knew a drunk that he could talk to, she said immediately, well, yes, I know one, you know. Then she felt that this was the answer to their prayers, this man calling on the phone. So she called Ann Smith and said, look, quick, bring him over here. We've got someone who wants to talk about <clears throat> drinking and not drinking. And Dr. Bob said, I don't want to go over there. I mean, I don't want to talk about that anymore. And he said, finally, his, aunt, his wife told him, so well, you better get on over there. So she brought him over, and he said, I'll go over, but I'll only stay 15 minutes. That's all. No more. You know how we are. <laughs> so he went over there, and Bill Wilson did for Dr. Bob what Dr. Silkworth has suggested. Rather than talk about spiritual beings and spiritual discoveries and spiritual things, he talked to him about the hopeless condition of the mind and the body. He gave him the, great, the solution or the information on the grave nature of alcoholism. He talked about the physical allergy and the mental obsession of the mind. And Dr. Bob later in some of his writings, he said this was the first man that he'd ever talked to that really knew what he was talking about. And that's when Dr. Bob bought that, and then later on was to apply the plan program of action to his life, and he was never taking another drink except one more time. I think also during that meeting, we came up with probably the two of the most important ideas that our whole fellowship has been founded on from that date till this. He said he sobered never to drink again up to the moment of his death in 1950. And this seemed to prove that one alcoholic could affect another as no non-alcoholic could. All those non-alcoholics had been trying to help Dr. Bob, but none of them understood him. They didn't understand his problem. They didn't know about the physical allergy. They didn't know about the obsession of the mind. But when Bill sat down and started talking to Dr. Bob, not about Dr. Bob's allergy, but about his own, Dr. Bob said, hey, the same thing's been happening to me. Yeah, every time I take a drink, I end up drink, drunk just like that and he immediately made identification. When Bill began to talk about his own obsession of the mind, the many times he had tried to quit drinking and always went back to it again, Dr. Bob was able to say, certainly that's exactly what's been happening to me. This proved that one alcoholic could affect another as no non-alcoholic could. It also indicated that strenuous work, one alcoholic with another was vital to permanent recovery. It kept Bill Wilson sober. 
So the two things that our fellowship has been founded on ever since are those two ideas, one alcoholic sharing with another and strenuous work one alcoholic with another was vital to permanent recovery. As soon as Dr. Bob got sober, they immediately began to start working with other alcoholics. Hence, the two men set to work almost frantically upon alcoholics arriving in the ward at the Akron City Hospital. Their very first case, a desperate one, recovered immediately and became AA number three. He never had another drink. Now, we see this picture in AA rooms all over the world. It's called the man on the bed. And it represents Bill and Bob sitting there talking to a fellow named Bill Dotson. They sat down with Bill Dotson, and they told Bill Dotson three things. They told him first what his problem really was. Through the sharing of their story, they helped Bill Dotson see that he had the physical allergy, and they helped him see that he had the obsession of the mind, and they helped him see that he was absolutely powerless over alcohol. They also explained to him the solution as applied in their life. They said, we found it necessary to find a power greater than we were, and we found that power through a vital spiritual experience. They gave him the solution. And then they said, here's a practical program of action that we used. And if you use it in your life, you can have the vital spiritual experience too, if you would care to do so. Two days later, Bill Dotson got up from the bed, said, get my clothes out of the closet. He dressed, he went home, he applied the program of action, and he sobered up never to drink again up to the moment of his death either. Now, we got three people in the summer of 1935. All three of them know three things. They know what the problem is. They know what the solution is. They know what the practical program of action is. All three of them had applied the program of action. All three had recovered from alcoholism in 1935. Now, this work continued to Akron through the summer of 1935. There were many failures, but there was an occasional heartening success. Now, I think we need to go back to that summer of 1935 and look at what they were doing. You know, none of them really knew what they were doing. Everything they did was a trial and error method. These things were all absolutely new. The world had never seen anything like this. Some of the things that they tried that summer didn't work. And if it didn't work, they would discard it and try something new. They really had many, many more failures that summer than they had successes. Hell, they tried a little bit of everything. You know, Dr. Bob, one of his favorite things was to feed them kraut juice. And the vitamins in the kraut juice would build the body up and et cetera and et cetera and et cetera and take away the desire to drink, he thought. <laughs> and every once in a while, one of these guys would fall over dead. <laughs> and I can almost see a bill turn into Bob and say, oh, shit, Bob, let's not, let's not do that anymore. You know? <laughs> we always give credit to the first 100, but I think we might ought to give credit to those they failed with that summer also. Yeah. <laughs> because they learned as much from them as they did anything else. And when the broker returned to New York in the fall of 1935, the first AA group had actually been formed, though no one realized it at the time. Now, still there's no Alcoholics Anonymous. The people who were going to the Oxford group meeting, they were known as the drunk squad of the Oxford groupers. And the Oxford group really wasn't into drunks. I mean, that wasn't their primary concern was drunks. They let them come to the meetings, but uh, they were very unruly, this drunk squad. They drank coffee and they smoked cigarettes and they told dirty stories and stuff and laughed and joked. And, and the Oxford groupers weren't really into this. 
what they were really, the Oxford group really wanted to do was to save heads of state. And if they could get these heads of state saved, saved and practicing this program that they had, then they felt through the heads of state and their attraction to the people, then the people would practice these things and they too would get well and do, to do better. And that was their purpose, but being, uh, having a drunk squad amongst their membership was not really what they were into. Also, the Oxford groupers had, a, amongst many of their things, a thing called the Four Absolutes. Absolute love, absolute honesty, absolute purity, absolute unselfishness. The drunks were having a hell of a time being absolute anything except drunks. <laughs> so there was some, some friction between the two from the very beginning, even though they were working back and forth with each other. So the se a second small group had promptly taken shape in New York. And besides, there were scattered alcoholics who picked up the basic ideas in Akron and New York and were trying to form AA groups in other cities. Still no AA groups, really, just the drunk squad of the Oxford groupers. It was n now time the struggling groups thought to place their message unique experience before the world. Now, this determination bore fruit in the spring of 1939 by the publication of this volume. The membership had then reached about 100 men and women. Now, in 1937, Bill was back in Akron again on a business venture. He decided he'd stop in and visit with Dr. Bob and see how things are going in Akron. And they sat down there in Dr. Bob's house, and they counted the number of people that they knew that were staying sober on this three little pieces of information. And to their amazement, they realized they knew approximately 40 people staying sober. And I think maybe for the first time, they really realized that, hey, we might have the answer to this thing called alcoholism. Maybe what we found really is going to work. And the question immediately became, well, if it's really the true information necessary to recover from alcoholism, what are we going to do with this information? Now, remember always from the very beginning that came to us from the Oxford groups was the idea that if you're going to keep it, you've got to give it away. So the idea was never to hold it for ourselves selfishly. It was always, how can we best give it to the greatest number of people and be the most effective? Maybe this started one of our traditions regarding group conscience, because Bill and Bob made the decision that they didn't want to make that decision. They said, why don't we call a meeting of those people here in Akron and get them together and discuss this, and then we'll all decide what to do with this information. And they called a meeting, and there was approximately 18 people. At There'll be more discussion on group conscience later, but what was really great to see and hear in this episode is the growth of the program in the early days. It went from 1 to 2 to 3 to 40. Uh, you had participation of half those members when it came time to start making decisions about meetings, instead of trying to jam a program or an idea down their throat or just throwing them in a sanitarium, actually affect change. This was self-discovery for Bill because he had been in and out of the sanitariums. He had learned that there was an answer from his buddy, Ebby, from Dr. Silkworth. Now, all of a sudden, Bill has options. Before, his life had been going to the bar and drink. That was all he knew. And now, suddenly, he had an alternative. He knew that if he talked to someone, if he got with another alcoholic 
and spent time with them, his desire to have that drink would in intensity or go away completely. So Bill starts calling around to the local hospitals and doctor's offices to see if there's someone that he can talk with. And through a connection, he ends up getting to Dr. Bob's wife. And she says, oh, I have someone you can talk to and makes an appointment for him to come and visit Dr. Bob. Now, that must have been quite an interesting conversation between the two spouses. She's saying, you're going to meet with this gentleman, and he's going to tell you about your problem. And he's going, I'm not talking to this person at all. And she's like, yes, you are. And he's like, no, I'm not. And she's like, yes, you are. And he's like, okay, fine. I will talk with this person for 15 minutes. So the next day, Bill comes over. And the two gentlemen head into the uh, library or the den or whatever, and they sit down. And hours later, they emerge. Because instead of being for 15 minutes and get out, Dr. Bob heard something in Bill's story that made him understand that he had a similar issue or problem. And that's the beauty of this program. We don't tell you what's wrong with you. We tell you what's wrong with me, with I, with how I'm broken. And that's a powerful way to let people know that they're not alone, that there are others that have problems just as bad, if not worse. I thought I had low points. I've sat in meetings and just totally been in amazement of what some people have to go through before they find this program, before they find happiness, before they recover. And I'm always amazed that people are resilient and able to turn their lives around. I was fortunate to do it. I was numb. I was broken. I was just a, a powder keg. And now I have peace and serenity and calmness. And I have a loving family that understands me. And that is all a benefit of the program and working these steps. Thank you very much for joining us this week. We hope to see you next Monday for episode four. Until then, have a great week.